This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Friends, it is great to be around the Lord's table and remember the work and victory of Jesus Christ on our behalf. My name is Thomas. If we haven't met, I get to serve here at the, at the Erie campus uh, here at Calvary Bible Church. And it is a joy to be able to open up the scriptures with us on the weekend in your homes as groups. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to go to Acts chapter 19. Now, when we open up God's word, it is to challenge us, correct us, to comfort us in so many different ways. It is living and active. And from time to time, you come to these passages which are a bit provocative and can make us uncomfortable. And so the word of God has often been said to be preached to comfort the afflicted and at times to afflict the comfortable. And so just a little fair warning, today might be a little bit less comfortable around God's word. And if if that's true, then you're in good company. It probably means that you're listening well. So here's just a fair warning, two options. You can turn it off now and move on with your day and you can be reasonably happy, unchallenged, or you can open your Bibles to Acts 19 and we'll see some episodes together that might challenge us a bit. So in Acts chapter 19, we're gonna continue in the story of the early church. We're looking at this series of the book of Acts, trying to figure out where did the church come from as this small minority group out of Jerusalem to have become the largest, most diverse group of people on the planet. And we've seen episode after episode as they've gathered in homes, there's no church buildings to go to, gathering around the apostles teaching the words of God, around the Lord's table, breaking bread with one another, praying with one another. God is giving exponential growth, happening first in Jerusalem and then in Judea, Samaria. And we find it crossing all of these barrier lines in which all of these people that you thought would never be a believer in Christianity are coming to Christian, coming to the Christian faith. Even here, we see that Paul's been in a town called Ephesus now for three years. And many have come to the faith, many that people thought would never come. We see that there are those who were actually Wiccans, practicing witchcraft and sorcery, now coming to faith and receiving the gospel. And so we're going to pick it up, starting in verse 18, about one of these mighty works that has just been done in Ephesus and a response for those to come into Christianity, which is referred to as the way, people of the way, they follow the ways of Jesus. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Many people are coming to Christ. And you see these people who were practicing sorcery and witchcraft are coming to Christ and they're leaving behind old ways, even at a great cost to themselves. They don't go try to sell these books and make money from these books. They simply destroy these books. And it says that the value was 50,000 pieces of silver. If you would take a minimum wage employee today and add up their daily cost of what they would make of their labor's wages, 50,000 pieces of silver in Paul's day would basically be about $2.5 million to that person today. That's a massive amount of money that people say, "I, I have to loosen my grip on this because I am holding fast to this Jesus. And so we're not only see that they're loosening their grip on 
these books and magics and practices, but people are also losing their grips on common idols of the community, cultural norms. And so what this passage is going to be all about is about idols. And there's a disturbance around idols. So let's pick it up in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which means a great disturbance concerning Christians in Ephesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has been persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So here in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. This temple was massive, beautiful, well-known. In fact, it was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Everyone knew of Artemis's temple. And the worship of that temple involved these silver shrines in which there was a lucrative business that Demetrius participated in, in fact, probably led a part of that worship. And that's being threatened as Christians are leaving cultural practices and embracing Christ over the last three years. When they heard this, picking up in verse 28, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travels. So first this riot spills out in the streets and the blacksmiths start gathering other people and then they push everyone into this place called the theater. This theater was a pretty big gathering place in which civic discourse would happen several times a month. It was carved out of the western slope of the mountain just on the edge of town. Up to 25,000 people could gather in this theater. And so there's a massive riot beginning and everyone is being thrown into confusion. And they grab two of Paul's partners. In fact, maybe they might hurt them or indict them, bringing them in. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs or Asiarchs, who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Just imagine that. There's this massive riot in the theater. It's going crazy. And, and Luke records for us here that most people are confused why they're there and what's happening. They don't know about Demetrius's grievance about these things. What stirred this up? They're just there screaming, yelling, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Why are we yelling? I don't know, get louder, make loud noises. And here they are screaming and yelling. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, 
for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They screamed that for two hours. So there's a man named Alexander who's a Jew who wants to step in and, and kind of make a rebuttal and saying, I'm not with the people of the way, probably, and separate the Jewish community from this grievance. But once they recognize he's a Jew, well, then he's in the same company as the people of the way, the Christians. Because Jews and Christians alike do not participate in the worship of Artemis. And so they just silence him and just start screaming louder and louder, make more noise, get loud. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, imagine that. Now you have a civic leader, someone who's probably well-known, calms everyone down. He begins to speak to them. And it's very interesting that this final discourse isn't from an apostle. It's not from Paul. It's not from Peter. It's not from Timothy. It's not from one of the disciples. It's from this civic leader. And the town clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So here's that whole scene. It's all about idolatry. It has everything to do with the idols of the town. So what is idolatry and why does it not belong in the life of a Christian? Well, Tim Keller writes a great book called Counterfeit Gods. And there I find one of the most helpful definitions of, a, of an idol. An idol is something, either good or bad, that somebody in their life makes to be an ultimate thing. It could be a good thing that someone has made to be an ultimate thing. It takes the primary seat in their life. And as an ultimate thing, an idol is something that gives you your identity. It gives you your significance or purpose. And it gives you your security. That's what you're hoping to get from an idol. It could be something good that you simply made to be ultimate. Another way you might think about it is this. It's something in your life that if taken away, you wouldn't be okay. That's what an idol is. It has found its place in your life in such a place that if taken away, you wouldn't be okay. And so for the Christian, the most ultimate thing in their life is God. God is the one that gives us our identity, our purpose, our security. And so anything less than God that takes the place and ultimate in our life is not worthy to be there. Remember when God calls his people out of Egypt and he calls them into the Sinai desert and gives them the, the vows of this covenant of relationship with him. And he starts off these 10 commandments of the Decalogue. What does he start with? Is worship of God. He says, remember Israel, the Lord, your God, who saved you from Egypt, you shall have no other gods before me. There's no place in your life, if you follow God, to have anything above me. And then he says, you shouldn't make anything in an, in an image of something in heaven or on earth or in the seas below. Don't craft anything in an image and worship it and bow down to it. See, God in, our, in his worship didn't give us an image. He gave us a name. I am who I am. 
He's known as the Lord, Yahweh. And that name is associated with his great works of faithfulness, specifically his works of salvation. I am the Lord, your God, who saved you from Egypt, brought you to freedom, and will bring you to the land of promise. And so when we think of our God, we're not thinking of images. We're thinking of a name that's associated with great works. And so one of the reasons that idols have no place in the life of a Christian is because there's nothing greater than God. If there's an ultimate position in our life, there's only one of those seats, then God himself must occupy that. But one of the challenges is this. God has given us a name and not an image. And people really want an image to worship. And so exchanging the glory of God and not giving thanks to God as some have, they exchanged that for images made in man of creation and began to worship the creation as instead of worshiping the creator. It's like, as if like your children start worshiping and loving the gifts that their parents give as opposed to the parent who's the gift giver. Why would we do that? It'd be in misorder of value. Why would you love the gifts instead of the gift giver, but instead of loving the one who created all things and worship the creator of all things, men have turned their hearts to worship the things of creation, his good creation, and have made them ultimate things made in their own image. And so they have longed and looked for things that they could visualize, bow down in front of and worship. Now, the danger of that is that all of those idols in the creation, no matter how good they are, they cannot promise you or cannot give you what they promise. They'll always overpromise and under deliver. They're like a Nicolas Cage movie. The, the, you know, the trailer looks so good, but then you watch the movie and you're disappointed because all the good scenes were in just in the trailer. This is an idol. It looks great, but it can never deliver on its promise. And so you look at Psalm 135. Here's a great section. A psalm that says, praise the name of the Lord. Look at his faithful deeds. That's how we worship him, by name and because of his deeds. But the world, the nations, verse 15, have idols. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. See, these idols are dead, lifeless idols the things that are made by human hands that are not God himself, they don't hear your cries and griefs. They can't speak words of comfort, encouragement, or wisdom to you. They don't see what's going on in your life. There is no breath in their lungs. They're not living. They're dead. And they cannot deliver on the things that they promise. In fact, not only are they dead, they do something that's very deceptive. They begin to possess the one who worships it. Look at this last verse, verse 18. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The thing about idols is we're becoming what we behold. And if you behold and make a good thing, an ultimate thing that's not God, you're being conformed and shaped into its image. And so when you prize and love things of like money and power and prestige, you are shaped into that identity. And so you find yourself being prideful, arrogant, narcissistic. There's gossip and slander that's associated with these idols. We are becoming what we behold and then we are ensnared by them 
and owned by them. So what is an idol? It's a good thing. It's an, it becomes an ultimate thing in someone's life. It's something that is less valuable than God, but has taken the seat that only God should occupy. It is empty and lifeless. It cannot deliver on its promises. It will always disappoint. And it is something that can ensnare and enslave us. Now, some of us will look at this and go, okay, this is why it's hard to relate to the Bible. Is they're making images out of wood and metals and stones and fabrics, and then they're worshiping them. Think about what it was worship. Worship is the devoting themselves to them. They're giving of their time and their talents and their treasures. They're directing money towards these idols of wood and metal and stone and fabrics. They're so primitive. These people are so primitive, so foolish. I can't even relate with them. Why would anyone do that? Anyway, have I told you about what we've got going on at our house this week? It's so exciting. We have these new hardwood floors coming in. I have wanted them forever. Yeah, they're the same hardwood floors the Johnsons have and we're getting them too. They should be installed this week. No, I know they're not gonna match everything in the house, but we're getting new metal fixtures and really fun finishes on all of our metal knobs. No, we're not going with one metal. We're actually doing diversity of metals. We're gonna have like some brushed nickel and some gold. It's really cool to see the accumulation of different finishes in the house. And we're getting new furnishings as well. And we picked out the nicest fabric for this couch. When you lay down on it, it's so soft. Yeah. There's the worship. Directing our devotion, our heart's desires, our monies towards things made of wood and metal precious stones and fabrics and we give our life to them. Maybe, maybe we're not so different than those we find right here. So perhaps we can learn a little something from the story of Demetrius. Knowing what an idol is and how our hearts are so quick to attach the two of them. So back to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, we have Demetrius and once he sees that the disciples are no longer, these Christians are no longer buying these silver shrines from him and his business is threatened, he becomes enraged and he starts a riot. Now remember that from the text. It's not the disciples that started the riot. It's Demetrius. Because when the town clerk comes and addresses those in the theater, he finds no fault with the people of the way, does he? Now, what does he say? He says, for I have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. The riot didn't start because Christians showed up and started protesting at the local shrine shop or going down to the temple of Artemis and, and trying to cause a problem there and blaspheming their name. No, this is just simply a result of Christians taking their discipleship very seriously and saying, if I'm gonna devote my life to God, if Jesus Christ is the ultimate thing, then the way that I spend, the way that I consume, the way that I have content in my life has to change. And so there are certain consumables that I no longer purchase. There are certain streaming services that I no longer subscribe to because I am fully devoted to Christ. And some of these good things have no place in my life to be ultimate things. And so one of the ways I just 
encourage you, Christian, in which we transform families, transform communities, is simply by taking our discipleship seriously. What if we as a church and what if we as Christians in the world became more serious about our discipleship and devotion to Christ? Not to necessarily cause all this like cancel culture, but that we would be changed into the likeness of Christ. And as we're conformed in the likeness of Christ, things in our life naturally change. And as that happens, our communities will feel that effect. And we shouldn't be surprised when they become loud and frustrated that we're no longer participating in the same markets that we used to participate now that we are Christians. So Demetrius is enraged. Why is Demetrius enraged? It's this, his idol, what's ultimate in his life is being threatened. Now, would you say his idol is Artemis? No, not necessarily. For three years, many people have left the temple worship and gone to worship Jesus Christ and follow him. And Demetrius has had no problem with that. His idol is not Artemis. His idol are these silver shrines. It's his business. That's his idol. See, idols are always a little sneaky in how they show up in our life and how they find roots in our life. He's not upset that these people don't love Artemis. He's upset that in their loving of Jesus, they've stopped purchasing these silver shrines that give him money and provide for his needs. And so what we see here is that his, his true idol is his business. And that is what's being threatened. Remember we said an idol? Is an idol is an ultimate thing in which we're trying to get our identity. We're trying to get our purpose and our securities from. So just imagine being Demetrius for a second. The greatest worship in the area is Artemis. Everyone is coming to Ephesus to worship at her temple. And part of that worship is to come by and get these silver shrines and be able to go accomplish their worship up at the temple. And you're the one that makes it. You're the one that goes around telling, oh, there goes Demetrius. He's the one that makes the silver shrines. Look, there are the kids of Demetrius. He's the one that makes the silver shrines. Think about his parents like, oh yeah, that's my boy, Demetrius. He's the one that makes the silver shrines. He's my husband. That's Demetrius, his wife says. He's the one that makes all the silver shrines for the worship of this community. That's an identity. And then think of his purpose. I mean, if the community is wrapped up around this sort of worship and he is central to its worship, what purpose he has? Like I'm integral in our community's vision of their life. What they know as normal, I get to participate in. And then it's his security. Does he not say to his friends, like this is, this is our great wealth. It is how we have secured our wealth purchase the things that we've purchased, provide for our families. And so what's happening is not that people are leaving Artemis, that is his concern. It's that his business, which he has made an ultimate thing in his life, which is where he gets his identity, his purpose, and his security is being threatened as Christians turn to follow Jesus Christ. How do you know what your idols are in your life? If they're that kind of sneaky in your life and find roots in your life, how do you know what the idols are in your life? I would suggest this. The closer someone gets to identifying your idols, 
the more defensive you become of them. Do you hear what I said? The closer someone gets to identifying the idols in your life, the more defensive you'll become in defending them. I think we see this in, the script, in this text right here this morning. Is that Demetrius begins to try to make a case of why this good thing is actually not his idol and should be preserved. And so he goes out in the community and says, look at, look at this community. I mean, have we not gotten some wealth from this? I mean, this is a good thing, right? This is a good thing. This shouldn't go away. And then what does he say? Well, but even if, don't think about the money. Think about Artemis. Think about her temple. We don't want her temple to go away. That would change our community. It's a good thing. And that, maybe not just her temple, but what about her name? She's known all over the world. We wouldn't want Artemis to, to collapse and not be known everywhere. I mean, and also think about the children, the safety of the children. Don't think about the money and the business, but just for the safety of the children. We don't want these silver shrines to go away, do we? See, the closer someone gets to your idol, the more defensive we often become of it because it's a good thing that has taken the seat of an ultimate thing that somehow we're getting our identity and our purpose and our significance which should only be coming from God. If it was taken away, would we be okay? That's what Demetrius is facing. Now, let me poke around this a little bit to try to get to your idols. It would be so easy just to say, remember, what were the American idols? Money, it's wealth, prosperity, accomplishments, experiences. Now, I can say those things, and yeah, they're probably American idols. But do you feel uncomfortable when I say those things? Probably not. You see, if it's just something good and it's taken away, Tim Keller would say, then people are sad. But if it's an ultimate thing and it's taken away, people go ballistic because they can't lose what's ultimate to them. Their identity and purpose and significance are wrapped up in it. And so you know it's his ultimate thing because he's enraged and goes ballistic. So what would it be for us as Christians, as Americans? What are idols that maybe we don't recognize at first that have taken roots in our life that we would be enraged if we lost? Let me poke around here a little bit. It's amazing to me that Christians can be so stirred up in defense of fast food chicken restaurants, but can't be enraged with racial injustice, the sanctity of life being cared for, caring for the sojourner or the orphan often doesn't get Christians riled up. Why is it that Christians are more riled up about fast food chicken than about moral purity and righteousness and justice, mercy, and walking humbly with our God? Why is it that we are not enraged about affairs that we entertain, pornography in our life, evils that exist in our country. Perhaps it's because we have taken other good things that are not God, 
and have made them ultimate things. See, when I think about the American idols that we excuse quickly, I think of self, our identity, of a care for self, our own comforts, our own health. Now it's quick to excuse and I understand the conversation. It goes something like, well, what are you telling me? I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? I, mean, I should take care of my body. I should feed it well, organic. I should exercise all the time. I mean, well, I'm the temple, Thomas. It's true. But if your health was taken away, would you be okay? If your health was taken away, would you be okay? That could be an indication of something that's good, that has become ultimate, where you're getting identity and purpose and security from. Let me poke just a little bit more around here. I haven't upset you yet. Next week is election week. You should vote. It's really important that you vote. It's a good thing to vote. We have a great country. You should vote. But let me ask you this. If the vote doesn't go your way, will you be okay? If it doesn't go your way, will you be okay? And if you're enraged, if you go ballistic, perhaps that's an indication that what you see as ultimate is being threatened. I'll tell you, as good as our country is, and I love it, I love it, it is not God which is why as a Christian, it's so good to know God, to be resting in the security of my identity in God, my purpose in God, my securities in God. And I get that even as pastors, we can get sidetracked and worship even the ministry, the programs of the church. We can sacrifice our families and we can sacrifice our marriages on the altar of the ministry as making the ministry the ultimate thing instead of God as the ultimate thing. But let me tell you, it's cool when I look at this text to see that Paul, when he sees that riot in the theater, he wants to get in there. He sees that riot, instead of running the other way, Paul has this spiritual backbone that he wants to be in the middle of it and say, get me in there. I want to talk to him. Get me a microphone. Where is Demetrius? I want to tell him what I've told so many people here in Ephesus. I want to sit him down and say this, Demetrius, Demetrius, you have to understand what these men and women who you call people of the way have discovered is that this silver shrine will rust and fade. It will dissolve. Demetrius, you have to understand, I know it's hard to imagine because the whole world seems to be centered around the worship of Artemis at this big temple up here. But you have to understand there's coming a day, there's coming a day when no one's gonna know who Artemis is and no one on the planet is going to worship her. There's coming a day when there will be pastors, ministers like Timothy, like Paul and Peter. They're going to be speaking to congregations and one voice is going to be in all the different houses. And don't ask me how that's going to happen. It's amazing technology. It sounds like something of the future, but just listen to me. They're going to be bored when they're talking about Artemis. This silver shrine is passing away but the people that you call Christians of the way have discovered Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and they have exchanged this silver trinket that this community is wrapped up around to the eternal treasure of Jesus Christ who gives them a new identity of eternal purpose and a secure future forever. In his hands is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, and it cannot be shaken or taken away. Christian today, there's coming a day when God is going to make the heavens and the earth all new. And there will be things that just to the, the imagination are streets of gold and seas of glass. I don't know how it works. It's something of the future. And in those new heavens and earth, God will make his dwelling amongst us. He will be with his people. And Jesus Christ will make all things new. And whatever our idols are of today, if they are not of God as ultimate in our life, they will rust and they will be destroyed. They are passing away. But what is not is the kingdom of God and the worship of his son, Jesus Christ. And so what idols are in your life that occupy the seat that only God should occupy? That will one day fade and go away. But if you know Jesus Christ, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and treasure him, you will always have your treasure. You will worship him forever and be secure in his kingdom. I'm glad that you are in your home groups to have these discussions today. There are several questions that came in the home group discussion guide. Maybe you pick one of those or maybe you just turn to each other right now. I'm gonna be praying for you to have this discussion. What do you think are the American idols that have infiltrated the church that occupy seats that only God himself should occupy, that should be removed, that our affection should be returned back to the Lord? What are idols in your own life do you think that should be Move, maybe something that's good that needs to be moved down so that God can be moved back up. Have this conversation. Maybe you even share a story with your group about idols that you've removed from your life that you thought were going to be a total loss and God has surprised you with the fullness of joy in this presence with you. I'll be praying for you. I look forward to being with you very soon.